and welcome to episode 194 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik, here as always with... Jason Rabinowitz, and hello Ian, how are you? I'm well, Jason. How are you, sir, is the is the real question. I am good. I am currently in St. Martin. It, it's dark out now, so I can't see any airplanes, but I am in one of my happy places. You are you are close to the airplanes, no matter if you can see them or not. That's true. They are there. They're sleeping, but they're there. They're sleeping. <laughs> well, that's good. I, I appreciate you've been gracious enough to to keep me regaled with photos and some videos throughout the day today. So I, I, I do appreciate that on, on your part. How How is St. Martin? I mean, is it fully recovered? Because after the hurricane a few years ago, the beach was gone, the hotels were in disarray, but but things have come come back to, to a certain extent still? There, there's yeah, a way to go? Well, yeah, I'm staying at the Sinesta Ocean Point, which is the, the resort right by the airport. And they, I think they tried to reopen March 2020, actually. So not not the greatest of timings. Great timing, great from, timing. Yeah, they went straight from being obliterated by a hurricane to being obliterated by COVID. But now they, they bounced back. They're doing well. The whole place is totally reconstructed. Um, I don't know if the rest of the island is faring quite as well, but the beach is back, the little road there. The airport itself is on its way back. I think they should be done sometime next year. But right now, if there are jet bridges, they're not in use. There are several gates where there just are no jet bridges. It's just a hole in the wall. So it, it's very much still a, uh, a temporary operation in the terminal while they piece it back together. But I think they're, they should be coming along to finishing it next year. Excellent. That, that's good to hear. Yeah. I, I really it's, – it's like the – I don't know on the on the short list of av geek things to do in life that that's the I think one of the biggest that I regret not doing sooner when the 747 was still flying there on a regular basis. Yeah, it, it's pretty great. And it's a place where most people whether they are an av geek or not, they will stop and look at the planes mostly because it's just fascinating to watch them and secondly because they're actually quite loud. They've been doing takeoffs in the other direction. So takeoffs where they, they take off over the beach and over the ocean, which is, I'm not going to say rare or unusual, but it, it's been far more common than I've seen in my last visits here. But uh, today I was standing at on, on the the curb at the road at the very end of the runway and a, a JetBlue A321 and a, a Delta 757 took off in that direction. And it's just really fun to watch them come right at you and, and take off right over your head. It's Pretty unique. Not the only place in the world you can get that, but it's uh, it's one of the most unique. I always find it interesting that the places where you, that happens are all pretty much like resort airports or, or airports where people go to go on on vacation. Like I'm, I'm thinking of like Corfu, and the there's another one uh, in Southern Europe where it, you can basically touch the aircraft. As yeah. they as they come to time, so I always thought that was interesting that that people go on vacation and, and they can go, you know, get real close to planes. Oh yeah, and it's fun. And one of the arrivals today, I think it was a PC twelve. No, I think it was an, actually an SR twenty two. Was remarkably low to the point where even the locals looked at it and said, "Damn, that that was low." So if the locals are remarking about the aircraft that they see happen a hundred times a day, it was low. It, it was low. Well, good. I'm I'm glad you're having a good time, and, and I'm glad that that our recording worked out this week because 
there's a lot of news. Last week, we had a, a very busy week. We went to Sweden. You came back. I came back a few days after you. And that was all good and fun. But then we found out about United Airlines ordering a massive number of planes. The, all of the them, large, I think. All of them. They've, they've ordered all of Boeing's planes. All of them. Every, every single one, they said, we'll, we'll, take, we'll take one of each. The largest wide body order in US airline history. 100 firm orders plus 100 options for 787s with delivery beginning in 2024, continuing through 2032. Uh, United has ordered 787s. We don't know how they'll break those down between the 8, 9, and 10. Well, United doesn't know at this point either. They specifically said, we're going to decide this later. We don't need to figure that out now because some of these planes are going to be delivered so far in the future that we're just ordering the 787 type. Yes. And and we also don't yet know which engines will be on the aircraft. Up until now, the United 787 fleet has been powered by GE, but there's a a decent chance, it sounds like, that Rolls-Royce could in fact compete for this or at least a portion of, of this order. That would be interesting. So the 787s that United is going eventually to take uh, delivery of, whether it's 100 or 200, these aircraft are slated to replace the older 777s in United's fleets, of, I'm sure all of which are the, the 200s, the some of the original Pratt & Whitney domestic aircraft they have and some of the older ERs. And also, I'm sure there are lots of people who won't want to hear this and won't want to accept it, but also <laughs> every single 767 in United's fleet will be gone by 2030. And yes, that includes the 767-400, of which United is uh, half of the operators in the world of that type. A third. They are a third. Wait, because we who's can't- the... Who's the other? There's the 767-400ER-BBJ that's oh, operated that's by – Oh, come on. We got to count it because it's just such an oddball. Is it, it, is it the Sultan of Brunei or – I think so, but that doesn't count. Practically speaking, the, well, the only airlines operating the Okay, right fine. Now, United, Half of the United airlines. United in fine, Delta. Fine. fine. The only airlines are United fine. in Delta. And, but yes, all 767s, as of right now, will be retired by United in 2030. And I am, of course, I'm very sad about this because it really spells the end of, let's say, comfortable seating layouts on United. Those will be gone entirely. You, you don't Any think they'll go with a, 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 a seven abreast 787? Well, I'm currently booked on JAL in a couple of months, and they're one of the only two airlines left in the world having that. I don't even know if ANA does that anymore. So I don't think United's going to do that. Probably not. 333 seating coming to a 787 delivered to United near you. Probably. The other news that we got, uh, which will, I think, come as a shock to no one, maybe like two or three people, but they've deferred the A350 order again. So we'll we'll find out if they'll eventually, maybe, probably, at some point, could cancel the order and put it out of its misery. Yes, they, they said those are deferred until at least 2030, if ever. I would suspect at this point, the never is probably more likely, but that is nothing new. So 2030 at current, but don't don't hold them to that. So that's the that's the 
massive, massive order news coming out this week. But wait, there's more. But wait, there's more. Jason, tell me more. Well, I don't have the numbers in front of me because I can't navigate away from the recording screen right now on my phone. (laughs) But United said, you know what? While we're here with Boeing, why don't we uh, act on some options we had for the 737, which I think was like 46 or something. And you know what? So so I do have the numbers in front of me. I do have the numbers okay. in front of me. 44, 44 max options and oh, those so options, close. you are so close. But then the numbers all add up to 100. So it, it makes it nice and easy. 44 max options with deliveries between 2024 and 2026. And then 56 firm orders New with delivery. Orders. Yeah, 56 additional uh, additional firm orders for delivery between 2027 and 2028. So, I mean, what, what's crazy to me is that they've got they'll have 44 additional options. So th- those aircraft are now optioned. They are firm orders now. Delivery over three years, so 24, 25, 26. Then they said, you know what, we need another 56 aircraft over the next two years. By 2028. So they're going to take de- between 2024 and 2028, over four years, they're going to take delivery of 100 new 737 MAX aircraft. It, it's pretty crazy since a lot of this actually isn't fleet replacement. Yes, United has a lot of older aircraft, but they, I believe they're only exiting about 100 of their older narrow body aircraft because in the whole fleet refurbishment pl- project that has not yet actually kicked off at United, they're going to be refurbishing the interiors of their a319s, A320s, 737700s, 800s, 900s, 900ERs. So a lot of these maxes are actually expansion of United's fleet, not just replacement of older fleet types, like we see a lot of the times with uh, some of these larger orders. So with this order, United will take so with with the combined 787 and 737 max order this week, United will take delivery of 700 new aircraft. By 2032, and that's across the 787 and that's, that's uh, every every single new aircraft they have coming to the airline, including the Airbus A321s. Yeah, about those, there are only what like 45 of those on order. I don't think it's much. So yeah, it, it, so the that's going to be more of a a niche aircraft, but it still factors into the massive number. You know the the massive massive number of aircraft they're going to take by by the turn of the next century. So they, they've got they've got seventy A three twenty one Neos uh, on on order, and they announced that they're set to they're expected to take those sometime beginning next year or, or early part of next year. Not if uh, Airbus's production schedule has anything to say about that. Well, and and that becomes a thing. So so 700 new aircraft are scheduled to be delivered by 2032 at the current rate between Airbus's production issues, between Boeing's production issues. That when all happen. of these when all change, these aircraft get delivered is is really the big question. I mean, I think I read today that Airbus might pause production for like months to let the supply chain catch up. I don't remember where I read that or if that's even true, but just the mere fact that they're even talking about something like that is pretty remarkable. Yeah. I I mean, I I think that at this point they have to figure out what to, what to do 
to get things back on track. How they do that, whether it's a, a production pause or or finding a way to to help suppliers meet their you know demand to continue raising and raising and raising and raising rates, you know that that's that's a big one. I mean, like if you look at the the delivery schedule for the the fifty six max orders with delivery between twenty seventy seven and twenty twenty eight, so over two years, so so you're looking at what uh, twenty eight aircraft per year. At Boeing's proposed rates, they could fill the United order in two months. Yeah, I don't see that happening. Right. It's shockingly, Boeing does have other customers with airline orders to fulfill. Right, but what I'm what I'm saying is like it it there's there's going to it's be theoretically a continued possible. stretch. Yeah, yeah, there's going yeah. to be continued stretch in the supply. Right, and 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 Boeing United did say in their release that they expect to take two to three aircraft deliveries per week. In the years 2024 and 2025, I believe. So it's a ridiculous number of aircraft on paper being delivered to them right now. We'll see what happens, but they are are, are very confident, seemingly at this point, that everything will happen as expected. But as we've seen in the last couple of years, nothing will happen as expected. Speaking of nothing happening as expected, Boom announced that they will partner with a trio of companies to instead of find an engine for their overture proposed overture supersonic jet they will in fact design and build one with those companies themselves they're saying that a, a trio of companies so what is it like uh rolls royce pratt and whitney and cfm good uh, good good guesses but all mostly wrong so the the three companies that are partnering with boom to to create what they're calling the symphony engine for the overture aircraft we're getting really heavy-handed into the classical music references but we'll take what we can get i guess you have florida turbine technologies for engine design ge additive which is is a division of GE Aviation for additive technology design consulting and standard aero for uh, engine maintenance. Standard aero is a as uh, an MRO, and they will contribute maintenance and associated maintenance related activities to Boom's design. So, so three three companies kind of coming together ish with boom to build an engine the the specs that boom is offering on the symphony engine a medium bypass turbofan with the same basic architecture that uh, powers all you know commercial aircraft but this new propulsion system quote will include a boom designed axisymmetric supersonic intake, a variable geometry, low noise exhaust nozzle, and a passive cooled high pressure turbine. 35,000 pounds at takeoff, optimized for 100% sustainable aviation fuel, of course. Single stage fan designed for quiet operation, passively cooled high pressure turbine listed again. The additive GE additive comes in here with the additive manufacturing for low weight, low part count, and reduced assembly costs. And of course, it complies with all sorts of FAA and EASA Part 33 requirements. So all this somehow and the entry into service date is not pushed back 
at all. Uh, maybe. Well, the, they said the first flight is pushed back by, what, what six months or something, yeah. which is immaterial. But the entry to service date, I think they still said is 2029, which seems even more than usually impractical. Or, or not, not impossible, but just it, it's it's not gonna happen. So, so as we as we all know, certifying an aircraft takes a, a few minutes, especially especially in the U.S. Given the FAA's redoubling of its stringent application of certification requirements, Boom now says that it is quote on track to achieve type certification in 2029. So. So the the target language has changed. The date stays the same, but the target language has changed a little bit. Achieve type certification, not necessarily enter service. So so the the goalposts are are continuing to shift as we expected they would, given the fact that no person with any sense of how long it takes to certify an aircraft believed that the 2029 number was still a reasonable and good answer to to what was happening here. Well, sure, but type certification is is what the the last and nearly final step before entry to service, right? That's the real major hurdle. The rest of the way is getting acceptance to the airline and getting the airline trained up on it. So the the goalpost may have changed, but ultimately Type certification is is the most troublesome, time consuming part of the plan. Yeah, no, no, don't don't get me wrong. That you know that that's still, I think, an unbelievably optimistic target. I'm just saying that that they are sl- subtly shifting that language again, and I think as. Th- things progress, we'll continue to see the language subtly shift over and over and over again because I, I still. Firmly rooted in the belief that um, this is at the, like until I see the actual airplane flying the the actual airplane, not a demonstrator, not anything like but the actual airplane. Wh- flying by with the way, the demonstrator engines. still hasn't flown. True, also true. I I think that this is worth discussing, but only for the next five seconds. So, Jason, final word. I got nothing. Let's move on. Moving on. So the uh, the FAA, speaking of certification requirements, the FAA issued its final ruling on the Airbus A321 XLR this week regarding what Airbus has to do to ensure that the A321 XLR can be certified based on its current design. Because the A321XR has a a special fuel tank in the rear center of the aircraft where you would normally have cargo capacity, that doesn't exist because there is a giant fuel tank there. Yeah, that's what literally puts the X in the XLR. Exactly. And so there was concern, perhaps, I don't know whether it was righteous concern, but there was concern, especially among Boeing. They were the one that pointed the ones that really pointed this out to the to the FAA. Looking at the designs for the Airbus A321 XLR, Boeing said, "Hey, this is different because what it is is the the rear center tank is actually part of the fuselage. The outer skin of the fuselage forms part of the tank wall, forms the, the, the bottom and part of the sides of the tank wall. The FAA said, 
we didn't really think anybody would do this. We thought people would just put fuel tanks in the aircraft. We didn't really consider them making the aircraft fuselage part of the tank. So now we have to figure this out. So they they issued they issued the requirement that the insulation to keep the passengers nice and cozy as opposed to the fuel which doesn't need to be kept as cozy has to be very 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 flame resistant so as to mitigate any impact from fire in the event of any crash so so a, a big step because this is one of the things that Airbus has been waiting for so that they can progress with the A321 flight tests and speaking of A321 XLR flight tests, uh, Jason, go ahead. You beat me to it. You beat ah. me to it. I was going to mention, didn't that plane just do something fun this week? It absolutely did. So Airbus took its A321 XLR on a 13-hour journey over nine countries in Europe and the Bay of Biscay, where they drew a very, very large XLR in, in the sky as part of that 13-hour flight test. And so we we said to Airbus, hey, uh, what was that all about? And they said, do you want to talk to somebody who knows actually what, what they're talking about and can explain all of these things? And we said, yes. And so they found us, Jim Fawcett, who is the lead flight test engineer. So we're going to hear from Jim, and he's going to explain what the flight test was actually all about. It wasn't just drawing the XLR in the sky. And uh, we'll learn more about the, the A321 XLR program from him. So uh, stay tuned. We'll be right back with uh, Jim Fawcett. We're fortunate enough to be joined now by Jim Fawcett, who is lead flight test engineer at Airbus in Toulouse and was on board the A321 XLR 13-hour flight test this week. Jim, thank you so much for taking the time after such a long test flight to speak with us. I'd like to start with the question that I know I had and one that I know a lot of our, our users and readers had across social media and the like. What were you doing up there for 13 hours? I know that it was wasn't just to draw the XLR. So, so what was the flight test purpose of this flight? Well, first and foremost, the aim of this test flight was to look at the way in which the fuel system behaves on the 321 XLR. Uh, we've made some modifications on this aircraft, and it was important to check that those work correctly over the full flight envelope of the aircraft. So we wanted to start with a full fuel tanks and check that right down to the, uh, the minimum uh, required fuel for landing, according to the regulations, that everything worked nominally. And I'm delighted to say that that was the case. All of the transfers worked correctly. All of the indications to the crew were good. All of the transfer rates were nominal. So it was very important for us to perform a long flight to check that. It also gave us the chance to check whether the thermal model of the fuel system was correct. Uh, when the aircraft spends a long time in up in altitude, it cools down the aircraft and therefore the fuel system. And we wanted to be certain that there was no misbehavior. And once again, I'm delighted to say that everything was very positive on that side as well. 13 hours is is a long flight, no matter how you look at it. What's happening on board the aircraft during the flight? What are the pilots doing, uh, obviously, besides flying the aircraft? And and what are you as a flight test engineer, what are you working on during during that long flight? I, I imagine there's a bit of downtime throughout the flight. 
Well, it's a, an interesting question because this flight was a little bit unusual. It was split into two parts. We took advantage of having the aircraft in the air anyway to be able to write the XLR logo in the sky. And although we were monitoring the fuel system during that part of the flight, it was a chance for the pilots to show off their, their technical skills by flying that logo manually. We had a lot of challenges for them in that uh, test zone yesterday because there were some very strong winds and some turbulence. And they were having to fly the aircraft manually to perform the, the tight turns required required to draw the logo. So for that first three hours of the flight, the pilots were very busy. Uh, in the second part of the flight, where we performed our long loop over Europe, they were able to operate the aircraft in a more classic way, just like any airline crew would do. So performing their typical flying, navigating and communicating tasks. So that's for the pilots. In terms of the engineers, well, we were monitoring the fuel system throughout. I was joined by other colleagues as well who were looking at other systems on board the aircraft because we wanted to uh, get as much benefit from this flight as possible. So we were looking at things like the noise environment in the aircraft for passenger comfort. We were looking at the good behavior of the toilets and the water system over a long duration to make sure there's no problems with freezing, for example took a look at a lot of other different systems to make sure that they were working well also. So for the engineers, there's a great deal of monitoring the systems, monitoring parameters, looking at what they're doing. And in amongst all that, we had to take time for some rest. We wanted to make sure that our pilots, we had three pilots, were rotating, the same for the engineers. And also, we're getting some food and drink. You can imagine we drank a lot of coffee during those 13 hours yesterday. Absolutely. Knowing how much the the aviation industry runs on a good pot of coffee, I, I can only imagine. One of the things that I wanted to ask about was the the drawing of the XLR and and the the small portion uh, of the X that, that was missing because the aircraft was only broadcasting in mode S. Why did you take the decision not to to broadcast in ADSB and, and only broadcast in mode S? So our, our aircraft are all technically capable of uh, broadcasting the ADS-B signal. However, at this stage in Europe, it's not an obligation to carry ADS-B. It will become a mandate later on in 2023. So it's important for us to check that for customers who decide not to take this option for whatever reason, they may not be flying in an airspace where it's mandated, that the aircraft still works correctly and is well uh, integrated within the air traffic control system. So that was a choice on our part to, to deliberately not activate it yesterday. The slight downside, obviously, having mode S coverage is that once we got to the range of the, the maximum range of the ground radars, it appeared that the uh, part of the logo we were drawing was a little bit limited. But we've got internal data which shows that we did actually fly the whole XLR logo. So that will become available in due course. When I'm going to be on an aircraft for 13 hours, I'm loading up my iPad with movies or I'm shopping for a good book. And I think most importantly, I'm trying to figure out what snacks I want to bring for, for the journey in between meal services. Is the crew on a 13-hour on a test flight, are you packing your own sandwiches? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, so some people do like to bring their own personal uh, favorites. So maybe they bring a flask of their favorite tea or, or some fresh fruit or chocolate bars, whatever. But when we know we have a long flight coming up, we can prepare for it. First of all, uh, in advance, uh, it's important for the crew to be in good shape when they fly. So we make sure we're rested before we go flying. And then if we know that there are parts of the flight which might be a bit calmer, we can perhaps bring additional work to do. So we could be preparing a future test flight or writing a report from a previous test flight that kind of thing. And there's also, as I mentioned previously, a requirement to have time on board to, to rest to make sure the crew carry on being in good shape throughout the flight. So yeah, there's a lot of preparation which uh, which goes on. And in terms of what we get on board, I mentioned the coffee, but actually we can order catering just like any airline would. So I can tell you yesterday, we ate a vast quantity of croissant first thing in the morning. Then we had a nice meal of chicken or fish according to the preference at lunchtime. Uh, but by the end of the day, we were very much on the chocolate bars to keep us going until we landed back in Toulouse. 
coffee and chocolate bars is really the best way to get through any flight. I wanted to ask you about about Flight Radar 24, actually, or, or the people using Flight Radar 24. At one point, as you were completing the XLR drawing, nearly 50,000 people were following the flight. And then in total, about 100,000 people followed at least a part of the flight. Is it strange knowing that there are thousands of people following along in real time? Yeah, this was really interesting for us. We, 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 we kind of imagined that people might be interested in it, but we didn't actually have on this particular test aircraft a connectivity solution allowing us to look in real time at what was happening on Flight Radar 24. So the only clue that we could get was from comments we were receiving from various people we spoke to throughout the day. So, for example, for the early part of the flight, the, the fuel system specialists at our design offices in the UK were following us via a telemetry link, and they were all commenting on the increasing number of people following us on Flight Radar. 24 as, as it became clear what we were doing. The air traffic controllers, even though they're not allowed to look at Flight Radar 24 whilst they're working, those who were coming on to shift and starting working with us were all saying, ah, Airbus XLR, you're the guys flying around Europe uh, and making some really positive comments about it. Uh, and when we landed back in Toulouse, the very last controller we spoke to, the tower controller in Toulouse, he said, ah, you've just done your 13-hour flight and you've drawn that wonderful picture. I saw it on Flight Radar 24 before I left home, and uh, I'd just like to say, well done, and I hope you get a good night's sleep. So we understood that there was something going on, but it was a very indirect way of us uh, of us learning it. And it was really only when we got back uh, to our offices and turned on our computers that we could see the level of interest that had been shown in the flight. So it was great to, to have that being shared by Flight Radar 24 and the community of people who, who follow their activities. It was great to see everyone following along and kind of cheering cheering the flight and, and noticing, oh, it's been in the air, you know, 10 hours, 12 hours, 13 hours. When are they going to land as, as you were waiting to uh, to kind of burn off enough fuel to be able to, to come in and complete the flight? So I, I thought that was really great. After this long 13-hour test flight, what is next for the A321 XLR program? So uh, this flight test was, as mentioned, a, a contributor to the certification of the aircraft. We have to demonstrate the normal operation of the aircraft over long periods of time uh, and the fuel system in particular. Uh, and we'll continue with those uh, certification or development and certification checks through uh, the whole of next year. Very early on next year, you'll probably see some of our aircraft flying to some unusual destinations because we need to go and check the performance of the aircraft in cold weather conditions. And after that, we'll continue to work on all of the different systems of the aircraft. It's a very intensive effort on several different systems of the aircraft, which have been modified, and we'll be working hard on that next year. Jim Fawcett is lead flight test engineer on the development flight test team at Airbus. He was on board the A321 XLR 13-hour test flight that drew the giant XLR in the sky, and he has been kind enough to share uh, a little bit more about the a321 XLR program and uh, what goes on during these test flights. So, Jim, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Have a great day. Welcome back. I, I thought that that Jim's explanation of you know kind of testing out the the fuel system. You have to. You have to fill up the tanks and you have to empty the tanks. And on a plane with that much fuel capacity, it takes 13 hours. Again, the X and the XLR. The X and the XLR. Flight. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, hopefully we'll see it over over here. I assume they're off to Canada for the 
for the cold weather testing as they usually do. But hopefully we'll see it over uh, in the Chicago area when they do the icing testing because they often use Milwaukee for their base for that. So hopefully we'll, we'll see it soon. Let's see. Today, Delta held its earnings calls. And the, I mean, the big news as far as this particular podcast is concerned is that Delta is getting rid of its 50 seat aircraft by summer of 2023. Mixed feelings on that one. Obviously, uh, happy as a passenger that we won't have to endure (laughs) 50 seat CRJs anymore because I know Delta has quite a number of them still operating, particularly out of the MSP hub in Minneapolis. I think there are quite a number of cities in the that particular region that are served by the CRJ200s. But as Seth Miller pointed out as well, this is a a blessing for people who despise the aircraft, but also a curse for cities and airports that are really only served by the CRJ200. Delta does not have a 50-seat equivalent to what United has with the CRJ550, where they take a 700, sprinkle some fairy dust on it, and turns into a a 50-seat regional jet. Delta doesn't have that. So any city that's currently served by a 50-seat regional jet, it's either going to be upgaged to a 70-plus seater, or it's going to lose service entirely, and that that's going to that's going to hurt some communities. I, I wouldn't be surprised if a number of cities end up losing service with Delta, or Delta's just going to have to bite the bullet and, and serve them with uh, larger aircraft that they probably don't quite need. Yeah, it'll be uh, it'll be interesting to see how they how they fill. I mean, because you know, as Seth pointed out, there there are quite a few cities. Um, especially within, you know, kind of not quite driving time of the Minneapolis hub where where those 50-seat aircraft are good utility aircraft versus they might not be the best passenger experience, but they exist. They get you there, and that's what's they important. They get you there. There is no equivalent to that aircraft, not at least in, in Delta's fleet plans in the future. So it is a gap. And in this country, we, we are adverse to turboprops for some reason. So there's really nothing of that size category that Delta will have in its fleet. So it's just a, a, a big hole. Same would go for American, but American's taking on CRJ 200s at this point, ironically enough. The world is topsy-turvy, my friend. It is. Win some, lose some. If you're a Delta passenger and you're still going to have your flights to wherever you want to go, you won't be on a CRJ200 anymore, which is great. Um, If you're an American passenger, sorry. (laughs) Some other news this week as far as aircraft go. China Eastern on Friday took delivery of the first C919. So look for that to enter service sometime soon. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how quickly they can take delivery of a few of them to, to really put them into service. And and I'm keen to hear what the aircraft is like from a passenger perspective, because so far we've kind of gotten the, the unprecedented look at first flights and, and when they live streamed the first flight from the flight deck, that was pretty cool. That was wild, wasn't it? But we do have some photos and, and information about the interior of the China Eastern aircraft, uh, C919 interior, and it's it's very modern aircraft. I think it's two by two, or, or I'm sorry, three, three seating down back in economy and two, two up front. It looks like any other Delta or United or American Airbus, they have first class style seating like you see in the US and then regular economy down back. I think this story probably deserves more of our time 
but honestly, I don't know what else to say until it enters service and, and we kind of get a feeling for how the aircraft performs. This is obviously not yeah. the the first Chinese manufactured aircraft to be put into service. This is kind of the, the real deal. The first one was more of a beta test with the ARJ-21, was it? No. Yes. It the, yeah, with the ARJ-21, which was kind of that CRJ-700 MD-80 weird clone hybrid disgusting thing. Not commercially successful. It was more of a, a I would call it a tech demonstrator for Chinese-built aircraft from Comac. But the 919 has the potential to be a very popular aircraft in China and potentially abroad, dare I say. I know we've talked about this with John Ostrauer before, but only time will tell. Only time will tell. Speaking of time, this is kind of going back in time. Uh, Emirates is opening up new city ticketing offices, which what? I didn't see coming. That's fun. So city ticket offices were obviously hugely popular before the internet. It is a place where you could go in a city to buy tickets for an airline, or I guess in some cases, uh, tour packages or, or just get general customer service. There are still ticket offices. I believe Air France and some of the, the French airlines have ticket offices throughout France. There are, are definitely a smattering of others throughout the world, but they used to be quite popular. And it looks like Emirates is, is looking at least with their city ticket office in in Dubai to make it more of like an experience center. You can go see their premium economy seat and you can do some VR, AR nonsense, who cares? But they were, they're looking to expand their city ticket office operations into other cities where someone could presumably go and book a flight and, and use monies to pay for it. Person. I, I like this ticket office, not ticket offices, but travel agencies are still very popular and widely used throughout Europe. So it, it seems like, yeah, time is kind of a flat circle, seeing airlines opening this back up. And it's interesting that it's Emirates, but I like it. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I would love to go check one out and, and, and see what it's all about. And you could have as recently as like March 2020, United had a ticket office in, in New York, in Penn Station, of all places. You could have gone there and talked to a uh, reservation agent and, and booked a flight right there while you wait for your delayed Amtrak train. <laughs> I'm done with the train. I'm going on the plane. A few things before we uh, before we leave this week. Confirmation that Air India's triple seven LRs are indeed X Delta. Pretty sure we 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 knew this going in from the start, but we we have confirmation given that the last the first one was delivered last week or, or uh, a little over a week ago. So there there's that. That's nice and. Yes, they have the Delta interior and all that, and, and hopefully, knock on wood, that they keep them in one piece. They also announced, and I know we talked about this recently, that they're going to dump 400 million euros into refurbishing their existing wide-body aircraft, which we talked about are in dire need of refurbishment. And they're also hinting at a major, major aircraft order, not quite as large as United's recent order, but I don't think we have any actual firm details yet, but I wouldn't be surprised if we're talking about it this time next week. Yeah, it, it sounds like it's going to be a big one, but details as of yet are are still scarce. This week in Toulouse, Condor's first A330neo, the uh, the A330neo that is in the green beach towel livery. Oh, wait, had was it delivered? It was not. It, oh. it was well. It was delivered into a building. Uh, oh, there was an there was an unfortunate. That's one incident. way to do it. 
Yeah, there was an unfortunate Wait, incident what? where the aircraft was tugged into the side of a building. Was it the delivery building? The it, I don't think it was the delivery building. It didn't look like the delivery building. It looked like one just one of the the one of the other buildings, really. But uh, the aircraft sustained some damage to its right wing, enough that they had to deal with a fuel leak. But no word on yet how substantial the damage is, or whether this pushes back delivery of their first A three thirty Neo because they have two there on the ground. So I don't know if they'll swap one for the other uh, in order to take delivery on time. But uh, it'll be interesting to see what what happened. A ground collision before the aircraft is even delivered is is not a great start. But we have seen worse for new Airbus aircraft before they have even uh, been delivered. Somebody mentioned that this week. (laughs) Yeah, we have seen far worse. Um, If you know, you know. But I, I guess we can just say it years ago, Airbus had a, a major incident with an Airbus A34500 in Etihad colors, I believe. Where it, they were doing yeah, I can't remember if it was a five or six, but we'll four, uh, uh, there's five a we'll have a, a link to the to the aftermath of that incident in the show notes. Yes, long, long story short, they were doing an engine run up. Something went wrong with the brakes, or they didn't properly secure the aircraft, and it drove itself off an embankment and snapped into two pieces. And the aircraft uh, obviously never flew for the airline. So no, it could be worse. It could be worse. And and we close the show on, I guess, bittersweet news. Mostly bitter, but a little sweet. The NASA 747SP SOFIA telescope, the Strategic Observatory for Infrared Astronomy, is officially retired. It flew this week from its its home in Palmdale, California, down to the Pima Air and Space Museum in Arizona. I say bittersweet because I'm bitter that the science was not funded and it hasn't continued to fly and I didn't get to fly on it ever, but it's sweet because it's going to museums. So you'll be able to visit it at Pima after they get it, uh, you know everything all set up. Yeah, if you needed any more excuse to go visit Pima, you should probably go now. And they have taken delivery of a whole host of new aircraft since I was there in probably like 2015. I think there's 787 there even. Yeah, they they've got they've got some really great stuff. Commercial, military, uh, they've got some weird stuff there and uh it, it's it's really worth visiting. Definitely one of the if not the best outdoor aviation museums in the world. And that doesn't even count for the military side, which isn't even in that part of the museum. It's its own separate thing, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, the, 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 the military the boatyard, boatyard, at Davis they the tours leave through there, but it, it's a whole other wild thing. If you happen to find yourself in the, the Arizona desert, highly recommend a visit to Bima. Now that the uh, Sophia Telescope 747 is there, if you were waiting for an excuse for some reason, now's the time. Now you've got one. Well, Jason, I, I shall not keep you any longer from the beach at St. Martin, though though you did mention it was dark, so be careful on the dark beach or or go rest up so that you can look at more airplanes tomorrow. Thank you. So there you go. So I'm glad we got to record this episode because it was kind of touch and go uh, whether we would be able to, to make it work, and we did, so I'm glad that happened. And this has been episode 194. We're closing in on 200. We should 
figure out what we're going to do for we should uh, start episode, planning episode something. 200 and next week is episode 195 that will be our last new episode for the year and then in the last week of the year we'll have an episode that kind of recaps what we talked about this year and some of our best conversations. So if you have a favorite conversation that you think we should include in that episode, email us at podcast at fr24.com and let us know what has been your favorite conversation and, and episode so far this year. And we'll we'll see if we can get it included in that episode coming up in two weeks. But until next week, I am Ian Pechnik here as always with... Jason Rabinowitz, thanks for listening.